Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet wasallam, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah, in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Online On-Demand Courses, your chance to study in-depth at your own pace. Each course consists of enriched on-demand video lessons, bonus sessions with expert guest speakers, live Q&A sessions with Al-Maghrib's instructors, and an exclusive student portal, all available with lifetime access so you can brush up on every subject again and again and again. With over 300 hours of studio quality courses produced and plenty more to come, inshallah, Al-Maghrib Online gives you knowledge that you can carry over a lifetime. There was a person who was making the bricks, the labina and the masjid. His name was Talq ibn Ali al-Yamami. Talq ibn Ali al-Yamami. He was making the bricks and he was very experienced in doing such. And, but, you know, you have the companions, the Ansar Muhajirin. Talq was from uh, Yemen and he asked the Prophet should I leave, you know, the Muhajirin and Ansar to do it or should I continue doing it? And the Prophet said, no, you continue doing it, right? Because he said, he said, you know, make the bricks for them because you know better how to make bricks or you know how to make bricks better than them. So the Prophet again, if someone has expertise in, in, a, in, in a field and we had examples of even if they're non-Muslim, such as the guide that's going through the desert, he would bring people of expertise to do these jobs. The title of Masjid al-Taqwa Masjid al-Taqwa. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَمَسْجِدٌ أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى مِنْ أَوَّلِ يَوْمٍ أَحَقُّ أَن تَقُومَ فِيهِ Masjid al-Taqwa, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there's a masjid that was built on piety from the very first day. Masjid al-Taqwa, if you look in the tafsir, they'll say that Masjid al-Taqwa is Masjid al-Quba. Masjid al-Quba. And then some will also say that, you know, Masjid Nabawi also has a right to that, that verse. It's known as Masjid Taqwa as well. Masjid Taqwa originally is Masjid Quba. Masjid Quba, the Prophet Sallallahu about every Saturday, he used to go out to Masjid Quba and he would say to the companions that whoever makes wudu in their house and goes to Masjid Quba to pray, they get the reward of performing Umrah. The reward of performing Umrah. So there's a lot of reward in praying in Masjid Quba. So the brotherhood. So as it says there, the masjid uh, being thus constructed, the Prophet ﷺ next turned his attention to cementing the ties of mutual brotherhood amongst the Muslims of Medina, the Ansar and the Muhajirin. It, it was indeed unique in the history of the world, a gathering of 90 men, half of whom Muhajirun and the other Ansar assembled in the house of Anas ibn Malik, where the Prophet ﷺ gave the spirit of brotherhood his official blessing. When either of the two persons who had been paired as brothers passed away, his property was inherited by his brother in faith. Okay, so the brotherhood, this khuwa that the Prophet ﷺ established, this was like a brotherhood at the level of blood brothers. So typically, this, this group of the Muhajirin, they would come into Medina, and they would tend to, obviously, this is just human nature, to stick with themselves. And the Ansar would tend to stick to themselves. However, the Prophet ﷺ paired people, one from the Ansar, one from the Muhajirin, one from the Ansar, one from the Muhajirin. He did this in Masjid Nabawi, and it continued afterwards in the house of Anas ibn Malik anhu. Companions paired with the brothers from the Ansar and the Muhajirin. Let's look at the benefits. What's the benefit of this? The benefit that you have to the Muhajirin is, is very clear, and a lot of people focus on that benefit, which is the Muhajirin will benefit 
because you know they, they're poor, they're needy, and so on. And if they have a brother from the Ansar, that brother from the Ansar can take care of their needs. When it gets very desperate and so on, that brother from the Ansar can take very close attention and pay very close attention to their needs. Now on the opposite side, how did the Ansar benefit from the brotherhood? And you'll see that how are the Ansar being educated? Obviously they're listening to the Prophet but it's an exceptional educational tool as well. So the Ansar, many of them have just recently become Muslim, so now they're being paired up with someone from the Muhajirin who's been Muslim and has gone through all these trials and all these difficulties is now going to be their brother and is going to educate them. So you can imagine they'll get first-hand experience how to make wudu, how to do their salah, how to, you know, all these things, that, all these lessons, 13 years of Mecca and Tawheed and all of that, the Ansar would get first-hand knowledge, each one of them paired up with one of the Muhajireen. And the same thing, their family would get, you know, very close personal attention. So it goes both ways. Some of the praise for the Muhajireen and some of the praise for the Ansar. These are their qualities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an. For the Muhajireen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised them. I'll just go through quickly. Number one is truthfulness. So they were known as being truthful. When they said something, they're true and they followed the truth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about them, that they are the truthful ones. So the Muhajireen, truthful. Number two is patience. They were patient. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا Those who are patient. Uh, thirdly, sacrifice. They sacrifice. And when a person sacrifices in Islam, they're actually depositing it for the hereafter. Right? So sacrifice, not like they lost it, but they do it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَجَاهَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ أَعْضَمُوا تَرَجَةً عِنْدَ اللَّهِ That they strived with their wealth and their, their persons. The fourth quality that Allah describes them as is tawakkul. They place their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if Allah promised them something, they believed it, and they would then you know, place their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it got them through the hard times. Next, for the ansar, some of the qualities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised them with was they love the believers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إليهم, They love those who migrated towards them. And all these qualities, we wish we can build them up in ourselves as well, right? Love for the believers. So when you see a Muslim, you just get so happy that someone's worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and so on. They had clean hearts. Clean hearts. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That they, they find no need in their hearts for that which they give. You know, some people, they're generous, but after they're generous, then they go and backbite on the person they were generous to. So, for example, they'll make a big meal for someone, like, eat, eat, please eat. And then when they leave, we're like, look at these people, they eat so much, and, and this and that. <laughs> so, the Ansar are giving, but then at the end of the night, there's nothing in their heart for what they gave. Right? So, they love the believers, and they have clean hearts. Preferring others over themselves. That was the quality of the Ansar that they were known for. Even if they had hard times themselves, they would still prefer others. Did I tell you guys in Hajj about the, uh, about the scarcity? Did I tell you about that? Hajj, if someone gets in Hajj and they got all freaked out. I've told you that? Okay. So I said in Hajj, when someone is uncertainty in their shelter and uncertainty in their food, they tend to become extremely stingy at that point. 
right? And we said that if there's a tent, there's only enough room for like 15 people and you have 30 people in your group, try to see how many people will be generous. Usually people that are like, you know, get out of my way, I'm going to get my spot and so on and so forth. And with regards to food, there's 20 people and you only have like 11 meals, who's going to share their meals? Everybody wants to get their meal before anybody else. We want to be like at the front of the line and so on. It's human nature. If you're getting into a lineup for iftar, everybody wants to be at the front of the line, right? And it's usually the kids, they just skip the whole line, the whole queue, and they, they want to go to the front of the line. It's human nature that's like, that's basic. That humans become stingy when they feel that there's scarcity. The Ansar عنهم, broke that when there's scarcity, they still preferred others. So there might be scarcity of food, and yet they'll take their food and they'll give it to the muhajirin. And they love them and they'll go to sleep at night. There's nothing in their heart for what they gave. They love the muhajirin. In fact, they took such good care of the muhajirin that the muhajirin complained to the Prophet and they're saying like, They said that they got to the point where they thought the Ansar would take all the reward. Because they did hijrah, but now in Medina they're being, you know, they're being lavished and taken care of so well that they're like, they're going to take all our reward that, you know, all this time, and they get the reward for taking care of us. Their quality of loving, their quality of loving the, the believers, it became a sign of iman and a, and a way of coming closer to Allah to love the ansar. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Man ahabba al-ansar Allah. That whoever loves the Ansar, Allah will love that person. And whoever hates or dislikes the Ansar, Allah will hate and dislike that person. Some examples of how the companions were with the Prophet. Like if the Prophet is speaking or they're in his companionship, how would they act in his presence? Okay, so they would have complete attention. Complete attention to the point where birds could come and like land on their shoulders because of the attention that they're paying to the Prophet Would they come in with coffee late while the Prophet is speaking? No, I don't think so. Okay, they wouldn't cut him off. In the gathering of the Prophet nobody cuts off anybody. You know if you've seen some gatherings where one person asks a question and in the middle of the person asking the question, someone else cuts off the person who's asking the question and the speaker is trying to speak, and they're both fighting with each other while the speaker is trying to cut them off. They're like, "No, give me a chance. No, no, you give me a chance. No, no, just hold on, just hold on. please, brother, please, brother. just one second, one second. So who's listening to you? Know what I'd do in a situation like that? I would just slip away. <laughs> you guys can talk all you want because nobody's listening to the other person, and that's not a respectful gathering where people aren't listening to the other. In fact, the sin of the Prophet someone would speak. And then after they've said everything that they wanted to say, the Prophet then وسلم, would confirm, Afaraqta, have you said everything that you wanted to say? And the person would say yes. And then he would speak, Like look at his khuluq, Let the person speak. And usually people, you know, these days, everybody just wants to talk, nobody's listening. And so even when you're talking, they're not listening. They're just preparing what they want to say. Usually what they do after you finish talking, they'll say to you, no, no, you haven't understood me. Don't they say that? They just go, and now you have to repeat what you said. It's just a bunch of repeating back and forth, a waste of time. And so the Prophet ﷺ, and even this example that I'm talking about, it was a kafir person who came to the Prophet ﷺ and said foolish things. He's like, you know, why are you doing this? Do you want money? Do you want women? Do you want to be a king? He's like, whatever you want, we'll give it to you. 
If the Prophet was going to cut someone off, he'd cut him off. But at the end, he let him say what he said, and then at the end he said, Afaraqta, have you completed what you wanted to say? And he said, yes. And they said, Fasma. And then the Prophet recited from Quran. The Prophet this is another thing you'll see in the hadith a lot. The Prophet using questions. Using questions. So the Prophet would say something. Atadruna, you know, do you know what such and such is? What would be the response of the companions? You'd always see their response. What's their response? Allah and His Messenger know best. It's such a beautiful response. Do they know what the answer is? And the answer is, they could have a logical guess. But you'd see out of their respect to the Prophet they know he's trying to teach them something. So he'll say, you know, do you know, you know, Muslim? Al-Muslimu man salim al-Muslimuna min lisani he would ask this question, they'd say, Allah and His Messenger know best, and then he would answer them, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They could, this could have been the reaction. They were like, I don't know, but, okay, hold on, hold on, I think the answer is, and someone cuts them off, I was like, no, 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 this is the answer. And they would go back and forth, but they wouldn't do that. In fact, I've seen in the hadith, the companion inside, they're in, you know, internally they're saying, I think this is the answer. But their response to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was, Allah and His Messenger know best. And they're paying attention to the Prophet ﷺ. When the companions would be amongst themselves, what sort of things would they talk about? And of the things that they would talk about is they would revise Qur'an and Hadith. They would revise. So if they had learned surahs of the Qur'an, they're revising with each other. And they're also, if someone had heard the Prophet ﷺ say something, they'd share it with other people and so on. And when they would ask questions, they were asking questions of the Prophet ﷺ to learn. Not for like um, curiosity, just kind of like, oh, did dinosaurs exist, for example. And maybe the person doesn't even pray, but they're asking about dinosaurs. And here's the thing with, with the questions a person asks, does this have any practicality to the person's life? And if they ask the Prophet ﷺ a question, it's not just for open debate or they just want to discuss, they actually want to implement it. There's something to be implemented and so on. Sometimes when people ask me a question, I'm looking for the way they ask a question. And if it's a, a question where the person has already determined for themselves what the answer is, then I usually, they're not asking the question, they're just making a statement. And then I just back out from it. So someone will come to me and ask a question like, like a halal meat issue question, for example. You know, eating at McDonald's is haram, right? Is that a question or is that a statement? The, like the fact that there's a question mark at the end there means nothing. The person has, you know, loaded a question. I'm like, whatever you think, brother, go for it. <laughs> and just walk away. Cause, and then when someone, another person asks me a question, he's like, um, he asked me, you know, in Surah so-and-so, you know, this verse, he's like, what does it mean? And I, and I told him, you know, there's this, uh, there's this beautiful tafsir book, and I gave him like three tafsir books that you can look up the answer. And then the brother said to me, and I'm like, Qurtubi, Ibn Kathir, this and that. And then he's like, I've checked those tafsir books, and I couldn't find the answer. And I said, I swear by Allah, if you check those tafsir and you didn't find the answer, you will never find it with me. <laughs> That's it. Question over. Okay. The karam, with regards to their generosity. Actually, before the generosity. When Muslims speak amongst each other, I've noticed this happens in Muslim communities. They'll say something like, hey, did you hear what happened? There was this Muslim girl, she got raped. And they'll say, I, I'm not going to put any details to it, but they'll say, oh, you know what, this happened in Medina. And they'll start to spread rumors, and I've, and I've heard the Shia say that those things, that type of, there's a difference between something really happening, 
right? Something really happening is proven. A person, a rapist is come and he's executed or something like that. And they do that in public, right? If someone's being executed, they'll be executed in public for the crimes they committed, murder or something like that. But for Muslims to just spread gossip around the community, now, when people hear that kind of talk, it's going to be one of two things. Either it's something like so horrible that a Muslim would be like, you know, I, I just drink alcohol. I would never do something like that. You know, what's the big deal? So they would belittle their sins based on that, or it just clicked something that I was just reading before. If you spread rumors like that, it's called, um, what's the thing? This is a tangent. It, it's a way of influencing people by telling them that other people do it. If you tell people other do it, you know how in the hotels it says, we encourage you to use your towels again? or because it saves the environment. Who cares about the environment, right? Nobody's really going to use their towels. But they tried this experiment, and they said that... This is a way tangent here, but... Uh, they, said, they changed the message. They said, other people in this hotel have reused the, your, their towels. And we encourage you to reuse your towels as well. They changed the, the message by showing what other people do. And they said that has increased the amount of people that reuse their towels by 26%. Because people copy what other people are doing. So if you're going around spreading rumors about haram things that people are doing, you're actually promoting the haram. Because once people start getting the thing, well, if people in Medina do stuff like that, or say, I'll give you this example. Someone will go to Medina and they're like, can you believe it? People have satellite dishes in, in Medina. And someone here is like, I've never been to Medina, but if they have it in Medina, then what's the big deal with me having it? MTV and all of these things. And he doesn't sign up for a slam channel. <laughs> <clears throat> You get what I'm saying? So next time you, you hear rumors like that, you just, say, you just disconnect from the rumor. Innocence of proven guilty. And they're like, no. The people are talking to you, they'll be like, don't be naive. Accept it. <laughs> and you say to them in response, oh, I won't tell you what to say. Tell them, no, I will not accept it until proof is brought. Three types of karam, generosity. When it comes to generosity, you have the first type of person that doesn't ask and is not generous. So there's no generosity whatsoever in this person. So you go to someone's house, for example, they don't ask you if you're thirsty, they don't offer it. <laughs> there's just nothing, they just sit there. This is the typical Western person, okay? Be just being honest. This is, uh, when I say Western, I'm talking about us. <laughs> this is normally what we do. Nobody asks, nobody like. Sometimes we get to the next level, which is asking. Can I get you anything? Can I get you anything? It's so annoying and it's embarrassing as well. Would you like to eat a huge meal? <laughs> and the person's like, yeah, I want to eat a huge meal, right? Please bring me fruits and bring me lots of things. <laughs> so you're embarrassing the person, but that's, that, this second category is usually where we stand at, which is we ask, this excessive asking, and sometimes you ask once or twice, and we just let it. And then maybe later on the person does get hungry, does get thirsty, but that guest is abandoned because you asked two hours ago whether they wanted something to drink or not. The third level is, this is what the companions in the Ansar, this is what we want to aim for, and that is we give without asking. We give without asking the person. And that is generosity. Give without asking the person. And that is husn al-khuluq as well. With the good character that we learn from the Ansar, the Muhajirin, obviously, and they're learning from the Prophet is husn al-khuluq. It's taking care of people, even though they haven't asked, you're not embarrassing them. You just provide for them. And then maybe at that time they were like, oh, you know what, I don't need him. Like, okay, alhamdulillah. And they'll, they'll take, but this is what you're doing. Giving without asking. One of the first surahs to be revealed in Medina was Surah Al-Baqarah. Surah Al-Baqarah, 
So it's like community building. In Surah Al-Baqarah, you have all the foundations of a community. You'll find them in Surah Al-Baqarah. Also, from the first surahs revealed in Medina was um, Surah Al-Mutaffifin. Surah Al-Mutaffifin, in the beginning of the surah, Mutaffifin are those who shortchange in business dealings. So that would be, for example, if uh, someone is weighing something and they put, you know how when they scale something and they put a weight that is, say, one pound, for example, and then they, they put some food or something on it, it's like playing games with that pound. Is it really one pound or not? So you play games with that and shortchanging. The Aus and Khazraj used to play games and, and cheat people before. And, and then when this surah was revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, mutaffifin. Woe to those who shortchange. When they go to buy from someone, they want to make sure that they're not being cheated. But once people come to them, then they try to shortchange them. And so after that, the, one of the companions said that the Ansar became the best people in measurement, the best people to do business with after the surah was revealed, after the Prophet came to Medina. The Medinan constitution. As we said, the Prophet entered Medina as a leader, a political leader from the very first day he came in. So he didn't come in as a local imam and later on moved up to be the leader. From day one, he was coming in as the accepted leader, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This constitution of Medina, there's different things in it, but the Prophet one of the main things that you learned is up until that point, people were unified based on their tribes. Right, so this is the Aus, this is the Khazraj, this is the Jewish tribe here and that Jewish tribe there. Everybody's joined by blood relations. The Prophet ﷺ took down the blood relations and unified the people according to their Islam. Okay? So he unified the Ummah. And they wrote a, a constitution in Medina. So these are some of the things that the constitution speaks about. And there is a specific constitution, by the way, a treaty between the Prophet ﷺ and the Jews. So I want to make a point here that later when the Jews, when battles took place and the Jews fought the Prophet ﷺ, they were breaking their treaty. They have an agreed treaty that they would not fight the Prophet ﷺ. But yet when they did fight the Prophet ﷺ and he expelled them, it was because they broke the treaty. Like they did treason to the promise that they gave to the Prophet So this is like this example in the Constitution. So of the things the Constitution mentions, number one, it establishes the unity of the Ummah. Right? That they are one body. You'll see that right at the beginning. They are one nation to the exclusion of other people. So it brings together these, you know, ties of kinship, that's something. Obviously Islam protects that. But it's bringing the people together as one body, one nation. One nation to the exclusion of other people. Number two, it establishes legislative power. Who has the power to make laws? Who has the power to make laws? The Constitution says that the power to make laws belongs to Allah and His Messenger. They are the lawmakers. Number three, the Constitution speaks about what is justice. The specific definition of justice, what does it entail? It's not open to vagueness. It's very specific. This is what justice is. One must pay this. One must do that. This is what's required from them, and etc. Number four, it explains freedom of religion. You'll see it in point number eight, freedom of religion. Whosoever of the Jews follows us shall have aid and... Uh, Sukkur, whatever that is. They shall not be injured nor any enemy be guide aided against them. So notice that from day one, the Prophet is not saying to them, oh, you become Muslim or we're going to expel you. They have a right to be Jewish in Medina. And they can stay on their religion in Medina. 
that there's promises they had with the Prophet ﷺ, but they still were able to live in Medina and they were protected. As the Prophet said, they shall have aid. Number five, you'll also see that in the Constitution that the Prophet ﷺ is establishing that taking care and treating people justice is a requirement of a person's iman. It's a requirement of a person's iman. It's not just a piece of the Constitution. So you'll see in the Constitution something like, it shall not be lawful for a believer who holds by what is in this document and believes in Allah in the Day of Judgment to help a criminal and so on. Right? It's connected to their deen. So for example, when a person's in a city, they're following the rules because they're afraid of being penalized. So someone, for example, they're speeding, and then, and then when they see, like, I've, I've noticed on your, um, on your directions here, on your sat-navs and so on, it says, traffic light coming up ahead. Why is it telling you that? If you're not speeding, why would you care? Because <laughs> everybody's like, breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law, but when the, the government sees us, <laughs> then we slow down. Why do we slow down? Do we slow down hoping for the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? We slow down because we don't want a ticket. And as soon as, you know, those eyes, I'm just saying this, this, for us, it applies to anybody. When someone's looking, then people don't, you know, do these bad things. But in Islam, I noticed that in Medina once, they'll say, following the traffic lights, even though a lot of Saudis don't follow the traffic lights, but they'll say, following a traffic light is a civil duty and an Islamic duty. And then they're like, what do they mean? You're going to get, you're going to get sin if you run a red light? The answer is yes. Because now, following things that you agree to, if the emir tells you to do something in a city and then you're not obeying the emir, and he's not commanding bad or, for, you know, he's, um, he's doing stuff is for your benefit. And yet the people still break laws after that and, and whatnot. There, there's an iman connection to these things as well, which makes it much stronger. So it's a piece, an article of iman. If you've ever seen Muslims in a, in a, in a community and they treat someone badly, say a non-Muslim, and, and then you say, Astaghfirullah, how can you do it? And they're like, it's okay, they're kuffar. <laughs> right? <laughs> you guys ever seen something like that? They're like, oh, we sell this and that. That's haram. Like, it's not between who you're doing it, the fact that you, a person, a Muslim has lied or is cheating or something like that, this is between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they're going to be held accountable for. 